Gary Putnam was actually in the studio this morning with Richard, not Judy, and then not the next week. Anton Worthington, joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one's ever seems to, is actor Paul Putner. Paul, what are you up to? Where can we find it? What am I up to at the moment? Well, I've just done a recording of Harry Hill's comedy show set in a prison written by Dan Mayer called Life on Egg. I think that's just gone out, but you'd probably be able to catch that on BBC, iRadio Player, Sounds, whatever it's <laughs> called now. I just did a, a short film for Sky called Huntington Gardens and an urban myth for Sky, which I won't spoil, but that's very exciting. And various other things I've got to keep mum about. And I'm taking a show up to Edinburgh this year. And, well, yeah, well, we'll see how that goes. By the way, I must point out <laughs> the reason why Gary Putner only appeared on the first episode of the second series of This Morning with Richard, Not Judy, is because it was shit. <laughs> uh, well, basically, no, what happened was, yeah, we did have to drop a load of Rod Hull stuff because poor old Rod died. But that was mainly covered by Kevin Eldon doing Simon Quinlack sketches again from Fist of Fun. But I think this was an extra thing. They wanted to have a, a sort of Gary Bushel piss take, but it, was, it wasn't kind of conceived very well, and maybe I didn't do it very well. And it, it, it stuck out like a sore thumb. And I do remember coming back from the Edinburgh Festival that year on the train and talking to a comedian's girlfriend. And she was saying, yeah, I, I saw that show. I thought it was really funny. But they had this terrible Cockney bloke halfway through going, you're having a laugh, ain't you? And I said, yeah, that was me. Wow. OK. <laughs> I think you've been a bit hard on yourself there because, you know, however it went down, I'm sure it went down better than your first choice, which let's just hear a clip from it. <laughs> Well, Johnny Chingus phone home, and I must point out the best version is the 12-inch vocal version. <laughs> it was a record made by a Mexican guy, Johnny Chingus, which apparently means in, in Mexican, Johnny, ah, fuck, <laughs> or, or Johnny, uh, son of a bitch. His real name was Arul Garcia, and it, was, it came out in 82. It was obviously a cash-in on the whole E.T. phase that the country was going through. I remember there was a sketch on Jasper Carrot's show where they parodied the Financial Times advert where it was no E.T., no comment. Johnny Chinga's music was normally very Latin, almost sort of 80s cha-cha of Gibson Brothers thrown in. And this was a bit different. It reminded me of the band Landscape, particularly Einstein and Gogo, who were a typical early electronica 80s band, with Andy Pask that went on to write the theme to The Bill. The Bill, yes. yes. <laughs> and, and I loved Phone Home. It was introduced to me by uh, a friend. who We were both fans of Ian Dewey and the Blockheads, uh, called Murray, and he said, you'll, you'll love this. And I listened to it, and I thought, wow, yeah, this has got a real kind of groove to it. And I was able to do my, my robotic dancing. 
<laughs> at the local club, which I've got on video somewhere, and it's hilarious. And yeah, it was just it's something I'm, I'm very fond of, and no one's ever heard of it. And I was at, uh, in, in somewhere like in Notting Hill. And the DJ in the bar was playing it, and I went up to him and shook his hand. I said, I think you're the first person, <laughs> other than Murray and Johnny Chingers, that's ever heard this record. I found a photo of him online, which took some finding, but he had this incredible hat, and, you know, with, like, bushy hair sticking out under yeah, it, yeah. and huge sunglasses. He looked like a Muppet trying to sell yeah, the letter yeah. J to Ernie. That was... <laughs> Zoot. But it is absolutely forgotten, because uh, mm. to the extent that, you know, a couple of shows ago, we had our friend John Rain on, who chose mm. E.T. Cola Biscuits, and I spent ages looking for an E.T.-themed single to use to introduce that, and I think I used a, a kind of cheapo plays the movie themes yeah. cover version because I didn't know about this and, it's just and, and, and it was, off the radar it was stood in front of you yeah yeah but it's it's interesting that there's nothing on iTunes I think there's one tape cassette available on eBay you can get here a few of these songs on YouTube if you look on last FM he discusses how he, he came from Mexico and he moved to San Fernando. All he wants to do is make music and, and be a good, decent man and, and he'll press the records himself if he has to. Yeah, He would have loved President Trump, wouldn't he? <laughs> well, I noticed that one of his later records... In 1983, it was called Gandhi. Now, I actually don't... I both want to know and don't want to know any more about that. So I'm feeling, yeah. well, I'd be incredibly offensive or it'd be a disco version of the Gandhi theme, yeah. both of which <laughs> are incredibly horrendous ideas to I me. know, that, that's very strange. Or it could be that Smith & Jones song, the, if it wasn't me, old mate, Gandhi. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what's the B-side then? The disco version of the unbearable lightness of being, or something. Like I that. think it's Gandhi instrumental. Gandhi theme was an instrumental anyway, wasn't it? Yeah. Have, you, have you ever heard the Alien 1980 disco? No. That is fantastic. I've heard the Close Encounters one. No, there's where... one for Alien. The 12 inch is great, mm. and it's 1980. I can't remember who recorded it. It wasn't Mankind. Well, have you ever heard? You must have heard this Blake Seven disco. Is it on, off one of those Jeff Love? No, it's an actual proper BBC Records single that they did because they've been, like you mentioned, the Mankind version mm. of Doctor Who thing, yeah. which was a hit. It's all yeah, yeah. convinced people of that. But they did the Blake 7 one. Right. And it's the most weirdly depressing disco <laughs> record you ever heard because it really does, you know, because that theme music is all about the fact they're in a doomed struggle. Yeah, that, yeah. That music really nails it. When you hear it, it's sort of jollied up. Yeah, yeah. It just sounds really odd. But the, the weirdest thing as well is it sounds exactly like a pulp song called We Can Dance Again. <laughs> And I did wonder if the fact that that didn't come out properly at the time, only came yeah. out later, right. was maybe Jarvis listening back to him and thought, oh, hang on, that's yeah. like seven disco, I better, yeah, yeah. someone's going to notice that. <laughs> Who did it? It's Dudley Simpson. Dudley Simpson wrote it, but this yeah. is just some session guys with uh, yeah. very bad synths doing it. All those disco just, it was like when you used to get all those reggae versions of mm. theme tunes yeah. there's even a Coronation Street yes, one by Izzy Royal that's right do you know the most amazing fact about that Go was on. that John Peel had a 7 inch box that mm. he kept in see this is why people were confused by the contents it was singles that meant a lot to him personally mm. yeah. that he, he always said would be the first thing he rescued if there was a house fire so I think yeah. so he had the record he did with Bill Oddie yeah, yeah. Uh, all kinds of things like that I think there was a fall one signed by Marky Smith that sort of thing yeah but he 
had the reggae version of the Coronation Street theme, and like, what personal resonance could that have yeah. for him? I don't understand. I suppose the closest to that since has what been Toy Town Rave versions mm, of yeah. Sesame Treat Street, and, mm. and uh, was it Rainbow? What was the a, other a one? Trip to Trumpton as well. Trip to Trumpton, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no one really does that anymore, do they? There's no drill version of the theme to, I don't know, Hunted, is there? Or... No, but there was. This is something that's completely forgotten. Weirdly, from nowhere, mm. in the early 2000s, there was a dub reggae version of the Sorry theme by The Apologist, oh. closely followed by a hardcore rave version of it by Kick and the Teeth. Oh. Both of those, they were MySpace things, and they completely really? disappeared from the internet. Oh no! I think, I think I've got very bad rips of both of them, and but it's it's so odd that you know they were a sensation for a couple of weeks, right? And then they've gone from history because you know that nobody's archiving some bits of the net. It's all going to disappear. Anything which on an MP3, mind you, even if you have stuff on vinyl and seem to be nothing to play it on anyway, so. Apart from the original <laughs> EMI blur page, which is still there, and I think will stay there all right. forever. Good, good, good. <laughs> Just textured background and the Park Life cover. That's all. That's all. <laughs> right. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> okay, we're moving on to your second choice now, which I'm fairly sure nobody ever did. There wasn't even an actual theme single, let alone an old song based on it. You're quite a romantic fellow, Barry. You'll probably appreciate this. I've had to create a new world for myself. A world of sounds. Darling, you don't know how... That's Irene's voice. Sounds as if she's talking in her sleep. Yes, yes, hold me. Exactly. Hold me tight. I hid the tape recorder in the bedroom. I love you. I record everything on tape. Our conversation, for example. Right, well, that is a clip from a 1964 film called The Night Walker, directed by somebody that really surprised me when I found out. But, Paul, tell us more about it. The Night Walker was a William Castle film, and William Castle was uh, notorious for making exploitative horror films. He was sort of like a cut-price Alfred Hitchcock, and films like Homicidal. Well, he did a lot of gimmicky films very early on, like mm. there was the, the one with Emerger, where a skeleton flew out from the screen. Actually, oh, the, uh, the Tingler, was that one of his? Yes, it was, and it had buzzers in the seats. Oh, and the and house... That, that was Percepto, that was it. Oh, right, that house on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price, I think that might have been. But The Night Walker was the first horror movie I ever saw, and it was, must have been in the early, mid-70s, I'd stayed up late, I was sitting on in front of my brother who was sat on the sofa and I was on the floor. And the opening few minutes of The Night Walker, I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. And still to this day, when I watch it, it still sends a shiver through my spine. It is so weird, it's so surreal, it's so miserable in a, in a funny kind of way. It's, it's got this almost nihilism about it. And it's, yes, it's Dali-esque and has this terrifying payoff at the end of all this Monty Python, Terry Gilliam-esque art and animation that, that begins the film. It, it's a bit like one of those UPA cartoons of the Telltale Heart. It's a very Edgar Allan Poe. There, I've, I've absolutely bombarded you with references there. But, <laughs> but it bombarded me that, that day because I, when I saw this image, which I won't spoil, I'll let you watch it for yourself, I jumped off the carpet onto my brother's lap. I couldn't sleep for about a month and was hooked after that. But it took me years and years and years to track down this film. 
I just knew it. I, I always thought it was called Nightmare. And there are films called Nightmare, which, which wasn't the Nightwalker. And I tried to trace it back through old TV times and radio times. And then when the internet came out, I, I tried to put in searches, but none of it come out and then eventually the internet got better and I, and, I, <laughs> and I found it and got a bootleg of it. It's since come out on Blu-ray and it's just a, a very creepy film which has a resonance for me. Also it has a fantastic theme tune uh, score to the film uh, by Vic Mizzy who of course is most well known for doing the theme to the Adams family. So it's got this sort of quirky, it's it's pizzicato sort of sound to it. It's very jerky, cartoon horror music. And also there's a, there's a character in it who it's the first time I think I'd seen a creature with no eyes with white eyes. But after that, I saw the man with the X-ray eyes, which similarly scared the hell out of me. Well, notice it was written by Robert Block, who this is one yeah. of my favourite things. He wrote, obviously, he wrote Psycho, he wrote yeah. a number of other mm. films. But when you say his name out loud, it's suspiciously close to Bob Block. Oh, of course, right. wrote Rent a Coast. Yes, Robert, two Robert's... sides of the horror spectrum. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. I never thought about that. <laughs> Robert's robots. That wasn't quite so horrific. <laughs> no. Well, in a different way, like the jokes were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I'll tell you what. I will tell you what the, the scare is. It's basically a, a hand with a kind of clenched fist with an eyeball in the middle. And it sort of comes out of nowhere. And it's such a odd visual that I used to sleep with my hands under the pillow and was frightened to pull them out and look in case there'd be this eye blinking at me. Well, the thing used to be, I don't know what it was, but in the 60s and early 70s, there was a big thing about using the image of the hand. I mean, because immediately, yeah. hmm. I think of, you know, you've got the Tomorrow People, Ace of Wands, and Randall Hockey and the Seeds all have a hand going towards the yeah, front of yeah, the screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was that about? What caused that? You know, it's... Um... Uh, and, uh, the film poster for <laughs> The Unearthly Stranger. Oh, you well, say an unearthly. Yeah. 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 Well, I have to say it quite often because, uh, of course, the first episode of Doctor Who was called An Unearthly Child. Oh, of course. I'm quite often called on to refer to that. But yeah. what were people frightened of hands in the 60s? I don't know. I don't uh, I, I, no, yeah, I suppose so. And a lot of skulls, of course, mm. wasn't there on posters? Yeah. Tales from the Crypt. Isn't Psychomania got a skull on the. F- oh, with a yeah. motorbike helmet yeah, on. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, gruesome that stuff. That is a tremendous film, and that doesn't get mm. celebrated enough. Psychomania. Psychomania, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah with a... Although, one of my big problems with it is, mm. being, obviously, you know, I've got the soundtrack, which John mm. Drum put out a couple of years ago, yeah. which is absolutely brilliant, but there's one track on it, which I think lasts less than a second, called The Frog. Yeah. It's where they reveal the frog in the film. It basically just goes... Yeah. <laughs> Was it worth separating that out as a track? I know, some <laughs> death metal bands have made a career out of... <laughs> That sort of thing. It's when it comes up on shuffle, though, it's all, yeah. always a, a problem. It was N- Nicky... Nicky Henson. Nicky Henson's yeah. in it, isn't he, with Beryl Reed? Yes, yeah. Yeah, strange cast. They don't make films like that anymore. No. Oh, have you ever seen um, The Killing of Sister George? Yes. Yeah. Now, that's got the most hysterical opening sequence to a film I think I've ever seen, with this really dramatic kind of Elmer Bernstein brass score like something from, you know, the, the carpet baggers, and then just Beryl Reed leaving a pub, walking through suburban, <laughs> just grumpily walking around Kensington mm. for about five minutes. It's great. Well, that was another, I mean, completely removed from The Night Walker, but that was another thing in, you only really got in the 60s, with, you know, particularly with horror films, mm. thinking of things like The Sorcerer, Twisted Nerve, and yeah, so yeah. on, where you got that kind of, that grimy London mm. that, you know... You also see in the, like the film bits of Monty Python and yeah. so on. 
and they didn't, you know, it wasn't made to look scary. It was always in broad daylight. Yeah, yeah. And they just thought the kind of the seediness that London was in at that like, point, the way your ambience just like it was de- as though they used that to their advantage. Like Deathline and yes, exactly like Deathline. Frenzy. Yes. Another one. Yeah, the start of Frenzy is really creepy. Yeah, like, yeah. Is it? It's just the riverside. Yeah, That's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the bloke from Doomwatch saying, "There's a body down there." Yeah, with, <laughs> with, with Hitchcock peering down with his big tie. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it's not actually your next choice itself, but the clip I'm going to use for it is something that I'm wondering if people will find similarly frightening to the Nightwalker, particularly given your description of one of the characters from it. But let's just hear it and let's see what happens after that. <laughs> This deserved Won't you tell me why the world in which you're living is so strange Oh, Mr. Soft, how come everything around you is so soft and rearranged Bite through the shell of a tree bore spearmint soft mint and everything turns chewy and soft They're crispy on the outside Chewy on the inside. Okay, that was an advert for Tree Bore Soft Mints from the early 90s with Mr. Soft, which I seem to remember <laughs> on the radio show you were on once, Peter Bainham said he was frightened of because that's <laughs> a man with a pillow face bumping into yeah, things. Yeah. But it's not the actual Mr. Soft advert that we're looking at, it's something else Tree Bore did at one point. What I want to discuss on, on a confectionery-based level is Trebor, in particular Trebor Land, which was a campaign, an aggressive campaign that they did on television and in children's comics at the time for offers and, and prizes and to send off for gifts, where you basically had to eat your own body weight in sweets <laughs> to enter these competitions. And I entered a, a, a couple of them. They used to have this advert. Used to know all the lyrics to it. Grab a blackjack, fruit salad, flavour chew. Marjorie's wrong, Marjorie. We're one a penny, two a penny, nothing to lose. Shuffle to <laughs> your sweet shop and get some chews. So I still remember the lyrics over 40 years later. And so you had that on the telly a lot. And then you get these adverts in the, in, in Wizard and Chips, Whoopee, mainly the IPC comics, Monster Fun. And they were, there was one competition where they said, design a stamp for Treeborland and get any wish you want so it was a bit like getting a bit of a um, piece of the Jim will fix it action and so I, I designed a fantastic stamp and my friend did and then we went out and bought about 30 packets of blobs over a month or we used to go in and steal the wrappers but leave the sweets so it felt like we weren't quite stealing and then sent off and I wanted to meet Jaws from The Spy Who Loved Me that was my fantasy Richard Gill and I came second and won a poster so I was quite surprised by that until I went round to tell my friend and he discovered that he came second as well and then I came second again <laughs> because I entered about three times the following week and I think I came second one more time. So that was a bit of a scam. So they just wanted you to keep buying their keep, products. Keep buying these <laughs> bloody sweets. And then they used to have these toys you could buy which each toy was related to a particular suite for example there was a granny kite i can't remember what the suite was for that there was a blackjack riddle diddler which is about as unwoke as you can get Mm. a blobs raspberry blower record which was a little flexi disc with its own needle which you could play and it would go so you couldn't hear anything oh and a little boomerang which didn't work and it was all just tat which you'd you'd spent all this money on on whopper bars and hunk bars and 
blobs. Blobs were weird, weren't they? Ginger beer and mm. sherbet flavour. And... Well, that's the main thing that I know it from. Was it seemed always seemed to me that any old comic I managed to get hold mm. of, you mm. know, like an, any IPC comic, mm. had the exact same advert in, which was a comic strip mm. called Patch and the Monsters. It wasn't advert for Patch blobs, and the Monsters, but it, it had that air of almost like they were trying to fool you yes. into thinking it was part of the comic to make you buy it. But it just didn't. It wasn't convincing enough. No, even as a little kid when I saw this, I thought yeah. it doesn't quite. It's like it was like the way if an animated public information film came on for about a second you yes. think oh it's a cartoon and yeah think, yeah yeah no that's not a cartoon that's no, not no, right that's, that's a Trojan horse <laughs> yeah well that, funny enough one of the gifts that you would get if you bought enough chocolate bars of monsters laughs and furry friends was in an inflatable patch and an inflatable monster which came up to your knee well a bit hot well no it would come up to your to your chest if you were a little kid and again they would swim just (laughs) deflated with all the seams sort of ripped and Mm. but you see the thing was at that age I was so suggestible to advertising and and things I liked I remember once it was a Sunday morning and we were watching Laurel and Hardy on the telly and I was laughing so much and I loved it so much and this was before having a, a VCR and I thought wow that's over now. How am I going to get more Laurel and Hardy? How can I experience more Stan and Ollie? And the only way I could do that was cycling before the shop shut at noon to the sweet shop to buy a Laurel and Hardy toffee lolly, which the only thing that connected it to Laurel and Hardy was a picture, a cartoon picture of them on the jar that the lollies came out. But I felt that I, I was still in the in that zone was it them or was it the cartoon then it was the, it was the cartoon then so it wasn't even the actual actors mm-hmm. but it was still Laurel and Hardy-ish they didn't mention that in Stan and Ollie <laughs> <laughs> no but I was going to say shouldn't you rather than cycling there shouldn't you have gone on one of those things that they used to have uh, well, you know, the railway on the railway with the, the handle go up and down yeah well that's what it felt like <laughs> just zooming over there to, to get these things yeah but yeah, advertising was quite, for things like this, was quite scattershot in those yeah, days, yeah. wasn't it? That, I mean, you know, Tree Ball Land might be a campaign, but mm. from what I've seen of it, there doesn't really be anything focused about it. It's mm. just yeah. buy Tree buy Ball. Sweet. Yeah. I think Cadbury's did one, um, and this is going back even earlier. I presume this was maybe the, roughly the same time. for Was it the 1976 Olympics, was that when it was? Where it was the goodies asking us to eat tonnes of chocolate... So we could get this big book of Olympic knowledge. And I thought, well, I'm going to impress my, my teacher at school and, and mention this. And so every, all the kids in the class were advised, come on, let's collect these wrappers and get the class a book, a single book, mm. so we can all read about the Olympics. And we all did. And the teacher said, oh, the book's arrived. But we never saw it. So he kept uh. it to himself, I reckon. Ah, oh, that's a shame, because I was going to ask you, because mm. I, I was hoping it would be, the only link with the goodies would be, to be like, for every couple of pages, like a very bad drawing of Graham with a speech bubble with Olympic <laughs> facts in it. You know, yeah. There wouldn't yeah. be anything properly goodies-ish oh, about it. I know, but our, our t- he, he was a head of our year, a bit of a bastard, actually, but he, he was in, he was PE was his big thing, so I'm sure he just pocketed the book when it arrived. Have you read Andrew Pixley's book about the goodies that came with the, the DVD book? I, I haven't year. yet, no, no. It's just amazing, just, that's just reminded me to mm. see that, because, you know, he lists everything mm. they did, basically. It's like the Beatles anthology, but about right, the right, right. But early on, they're so careful about the promotional tie-in things they do. Right. You know, you can tell they've, they've 
rejected some things and they've accepted others that are things yeah. are good for the goodies brand and that's when they get really big and suddenly it's like they take their eye off the ball with it and they're just doing everything you know all kinds of bad yeah. adverts and that's when I don't think the TV show went off the boil but I feel it reached a sort of plateau towards right. the end where they, think, they weren't getting worse but they weren't getting any better you, and you, I, I think it's just like what well, did you think they saw that they're, they're, it's they're, their be here now moment the, yeah <laughs> for let's make hay while the sun shines but then if you watch one of the it's the wonder of Woolworths it's only Tim and Bill in it yeah so I wonder where Graham was that day. He was probably writing the new scientist, which you seem to have done a lot of. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Getting ready for body matters. Was that, was that his? That body? was him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Isn't it strange that he became the, the face of science for a while? Yeah. After, I, I say stopping doing comedy, but he's still doing a story having a clue throughout. Yeah, while. yeah. But yeah, he, but he was. He did a lot of what, TV science what, shows, didn't he? So what was Tim Brooke Taylor's? What did he moonlight? Bill went and did his ornithology. Mm. Graham did his, his medi- medical stuff. What Tim Brooke Taylor did You Must Be the Husband, which is a sitcom that still makes me shudder when I think about oh, it. Oh, right, and Me and My Girl. Oh, yes, of course, he was in that as well. Yeah. And then they narrated Gideon as well, right. the children's ITV thing about a goose. I think it was a goose, yeah. wasn't it? With a really long neck. I did, a, I did an episode, we did a thing called TLC. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. with, and, and that was with Rhys Shearsmith and Alexander Armstrong. It was a medical yeah. uh, comedy sitcom. And Tim was in it. And my mum's best friend went out with him in, in the 1960, I think. And I mentioned this. Oh, his face was a picture. He, he, he really kind of, you could see him go, oh my God, oh my God. Well, the main thing I remember about TLC was just the unfortunate timing of it, where nearly every review of it, mm. irrespective of, you know, mm. it wasn't that bad, but every reviewer said, it's no scrubs, as in well, TLC, yeah, perfect. no scrubs. It was set up It was literally yeah. put the most perfect kind of byline, isn't it, thing you could write <laughs> on top of a review, I can't speak today. And it was a, came out, it was a show that came out at the time when laughter tracks... Mm were unpopular yeah and I was, never understood it. And, and that really did need a laughter track because yeah. it was heightened wasn't it it wasn't mm. pretending to be naturalistic right well I'm actually doing quite well for links in this one because I know there were Laurel and Hardy lollies irrespective of how much they had to do with Laurel and Hardy but I'm fairly sure nobody ever did a lolly based on the double act in your next choice <laughs> let's just hear them in action you've got four partners in the hospital come on you're a good cop. By the way, who's my new partner? We call him Yo-Yo. He weighs 427 pounds. He's a completely mobile computer, specially programmed for police work. Is he indestructible? We think so. Send in homes. <laughs> secret. No one, including Holmes, must know his identity. Alex, no, don't. You're not a person. You're not going to tell them? In my book, you got to make yourself a good cop. That's what I put in my report. Okay, that's a TV series. For a long time, I just knew as a name in American books about TV, and I used to think, what on earth is that? I later saw it and I thought, yeah, maybe it was better just thinking what on earth is that. So, Paul, Holmes and Yo-Yo. Holmes and Yo-Yo. It's not a show that I particularly remember fondly or even revisited. <laughs> but it's a show which no one remembers it. It's whenever I said, can you remember Holmes and Yo-Yo? And it's not surprising, really, because it wasn't very good. It only lasted one um, season. 
it was came out in 1976. They did 13 episodes for ABC, and the premise was it was a buddy cop show where typically the detective gets has to have a new sidekick, and they deliver him Yo-Yo. And unbeknownst to him, Yo-Yo is a kind of android cyborg. Well, he's not. A, he's, he's an out-and-out robot, and it's played for laughs. There is a laughter track in it. And he can do all kinds of things. He's got magnets in his hands. He can take photographs with his eyes. If you press his nose, a little Polaroid comes out his top pocket, which is all great when you're 10 years old. This is, this is perfect TV. And why it particularly sticks in my mind was I <laughs> saved my eyesight because of Holmes and Yo-Yo, possibly. Because when I saw the, the trailer for it on BBC again, and then following the second part of a new series called Holmes and Yo-Yo on Friday evening. I just thought, well, I've, I've got to have some of that. I've got to. And my best friend, Adrian, said, there's a firework display at my school. Do you want to come along to it on Friday, the 5th of November? And I said, uh, don't forget, no VCRs. I, I can't, I can't. Um, I've, I've got to um, watch Holmes and Yo-Yo. And his mum, I remember being quite cross, well, he's not coming with us to see a fireworks display because of a TV show. <laughs> so I stayed in and watched it and was disappointed and wished I'd gone to Holy Trinity School in Crawley to watch a firework display, but then got a phone call that evening from my friend who'd been in hospital all night because a load of fireworks exploded into the crowd. Wow. And um, he had scars on his face and everything. So I can thank mm. a robot for that. But it, was, it wasn't it was a great show. No, I mean, I get the impression, you know, it's... Even with the way you've described it just then with all the gimmicks, that mm. it was somebody had merchandising in mind, you know, yeah. figures and, you know, mm. um, yeah. a kit where you could be yo-yo, but it, it's so unpopular it never happened. No, that does yeah. remind me that when we were kids, mm. we got given the Starsky and Hutch kit yeah. that had, you know, police badges and that. Mm. We had two plastic walkie-talkies and for some reason, a bit of plastic that went between like it was a wire. Mm. And we didn't know what it was. I remember yeah. a big discussion. <laughs> And someone, I'm told it was me, though I dispute that it was me. Yeah. One of us said that must be Hutch's snake. Yeah. You know, like it had in every episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been doing it off the back of Six Million Dollar Man, I would yes. have thought, surely. But there's been plenty of these kind of weird cop detective double acts. I was thinking, well, you've had Brandon and Hot Kirk, obviously. Alien Nation, much later. BJ and the Bear. Jake and the Fat Man. The Scarecrow, Mrs. King. <laughs> anyway, but this is a, a typical example. But interesting, I, I was looking up the act who played Yo-Yo, which, um, let's have a look. He was John Shuck, who, after the show, sort of became the replacement for Fred Gwynn when they brought back the Munsters. Oh, God, the he, Munsters today. Yeah, <laughs> oh, he no. played Herman Munster. So very much, he was very much... Kind of Ian Ogilvy to Roger, <laughs> to, to Roger Moore's The Saint. But then, to uh, John Shuck's credit, he went on to be quite involved in the Star Trek films, playing Klingons and various characters. So, you know, he's had a good career, he's still around. And the other guy, Richard B. Shaw, um, he was a typical TV stalwart. I mean, he was in films like Clute and The Anderson Tapes, stuff like that. But, you know, you name it, Macmillan and Wife, Banachek, Harry O, he would have turned up as a grizzled detective at some point. I understand there was another show that came afterwards called Man and Machine, which was man spelt with two N's. 
Oh, brilliant. Oh, it had to be. Yeah, it's set in 1993, but it's a, a female robot. Or mm. But the other thing, going back to uh, the Adams family, is that quite a few of Holmes and Yo-Yo's episodes were directed by John Astin, of course. Is, really? Is Gomez. Yeah. And he's still around as well, yeah. So Holmes and Yo-Yo, it's not something I particularly lie awake reminiscing about, but I still have my sight but it was a thing. I mean, people act as... You know, you get all those articles saying, you know, mm. oh, we're living in a brave new world where when something gets released on Netflix, it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was always a big deal when the new American yeah, program yeah, yeah. came on IT. It was always ITV. Yeah. And then we start with a feature-length pilot. That's right. And you can see the two-page spread on TV time. Yeah. Like, I've got to watch that. I remember yeah, yeah. that with the A-Team, the yeah. Knight Rider. Incredible Hulk. Incredible Hulk, yeah. Mm. yeah. Invisible Man. Yeah. yeah. Don't say the man from Atlantis. No, no, no wait, right. <laughs> but another thing I noticed about Holmes and Yo-Yo is that they had a one-off tie-in Holmes and Yo-Yo annual. No. Yeah. And it goes for about 45 quid, and I've seen it for like 50p in our charity shops. I wish I'd bought it. It's a typical tie-in annual that you get where the, the, the cover of it, you know, you get Doctor Who with John Pertwee standing on a, in a quarry or... Or it'll be uh, the six million dollar man with Lee Majors sprinting towards you in a red tracksuit. Then you open it up and it's just really dense prose (laughs) and really badly drawn illustrations. Just pages and pages of this where you think, well, this isn't Holmes and Yo-Yo. Yeah, I mean, I've talked on here before about my two favourites, the Rod Hull and the Emu Annual, where Emu had adventures on his own, but Rod didn't. And yeah. the two on his annual have fun with your calculator. Well, I just remember seeing that together thinking, they do like the programme, like when he sat in the chair. But the one that really, I mean, you know, you can just about get away with being off-brand with things like that. But mm. Holmes and Yo-Yo was a bit like, I mean, I'm not saying the programme's a bit like mm. it at all, but the Sapphire and Steel Annual is so off-beam that... Really? It's dreadful. They, they give them the wrong powers. They, they give... <laughs> there's facts about black holes and things like yeah, that, which yeah. got nothing to do with anything they ever did on screen. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. And uh, you do wonder who yeah. signed off on that. Because, you know, you hear things about... It was famously one mm. year Russell T. Davis rejected the Doctor Who annual. Because right. he said, it's not, you know, mm. it's not what a kid who's been watching Doctor Who will be expecting, mm. do it again. Mm. And yet, there wasn't that quality control back then. They no, no. completely misrepresent the programme. But yeah. I'm guessing that by misrepresenting Holmes and Yo-Yo, they didn't seem quite good, and that's why yeah. the animal goes silly money now. Because uh, Yeah, because they probably didn't print a lot of them. But then if we didn't have Holmes and Yo-Yo, mm. we wouldn't have had the Robocop franchise. OK, well, I'm still doing really, really well for Lynx, because... There would never have been an annual based on your next choice, <laughs> which is represented by this clip. Oh, great. Can you give me a hand, please? What's the matter? Hey! Come back, I'm stuck! Oh. I'm stuck. Right. Apologies to anyone who saw the word out of town in the description. I was expecting the jolly escapated Jack Hardwick explaining after whittle sticks. Paul, what was this out of town? No, no, it's not out of town, Jack Hargreaves. I was thinking about local TV shows of, of Southern to uh, recommend for this, and one was Moon Movies, which was Desert Island Disc. Oh, yes! Um, and uh, Radio Phoenix, which was a soap set on a radio station, which is completely... How does that even work? I don't know. But I, I didn't go for that. What I went for was a short, spooky 
film called Out of Town, which was made in 1989. It's another one of these things I have mentioned to people and they've not a clue what I'm talking about and I couldn't remember the name of it. Again, trying to find it for a long time. And I don't really want to spoil it, but all I can say is that it was reminiscent of another favourite horror short of a lot of people, a Spanish film called La Cabina, about a guy who gets trapped in a phone box and all his attempts at trying to escape and people trying to help him out and the horrible ending to that. And this is a very similar premise where a traveller is in the middle of the English countryside walking through a field with his Walkman on and he gets his foot stuck in a hole on the edge of a field and meets various people and asks if, oh, please, can you help me out of this? And they're basically, it's a little bit like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Emmerdale. They won't, they won't help him for various reasons. And uh, Richard Ridings is, is a great character actor. You'd know him if you saw him. Uh, he was in a show called The Ritz. He was in Bouncers. He was in that Dickens thing recently. Brilliant bruiser. And he's this horrible yokel that's very mean to him. But I won't spoil the ending to that. But I just, I was trying to find this film for a long time. And it was only when I was working on a sitcom with, of all people, Keith Allen. And we got talking about favourite short films and scary stuff. And I described this. And he went, what are you talking about? That's I put my producer, I put the money into that. <laughs> he goes, oh, fucking hell. Nice one. He goes, it's, yeah, it's out, out of town, out of town. And so I, I, I eventually I, I found it on, on YouTube. And to my surprise, the lead protagonist is played by a very young David Morrissey. And it was just great to see it again. And it's still quite a, a effective, I have to say. Yeah, it's got the air of because I hadn't actually seen it before. One of those things where they tended to be on Channel 4 mm. when you came in halfway through them, you know, staggered mm. in usually. Mm. I mean, I remember it took me years to find out the name. There was one I caught the second half of mm. where it was really weird. It was done on Super 8 set in the early 70s. Mm. And it had, I didn't know who he was at that point, Sean Locke and Simon Munnery. Oh, right. really, uh, mm. as kind of some ne'er-do-wells who chance across a family whose car's broken down on a hard shoulder and it's a kind mm. of psychological terror thing yeah. and there's, there's a teenage boy who's been kicked out of the car from his paving earlier that's yes. you know, possibly coming to their rescue and it's yeah. all very, very tense but I didn't know the name of it because I didn't have a TV time so it took mm. me years to find out what it was called, I think I think I only found out because I asked Simon Munnery himself when I oh, right. uh, bumped into him somewhere. But it was called Smart Alec with a K, A-L-E-K. Oh, I shall write and that I, down. It was definitely on Channel 4 a couple of times. But you did used to get these weird, odd little films well, on there. I'm not sure they were always even listed, to be honest with you. Maybe well, I didn't well, know well, the name of it. Thank God for IMDb. Mm. But even then, I wouldn't have been able to look up David Morrissey's IMDb. You know, it, it's... I didn't know it was David Morrissey. And also, you need about five hours with his mm. credits as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the, it's that horror set in a, in a very real prosaic environment, isn't it, I suppose? Like Doctor Who. Mm. Like those Pertwee Doctor Whos, especially the ones yes. set on Earth with shop dummies coming alive and, and, and inflatable seats and... You know, and just every in in that normal environment where their monsters are placed, it's something slightly more scary than it on another planet. If you like Out of Town, then there was a, another short film, a lot shorter, called Desserts, made in 1999, which almost crystallises the idea of Out of Town. And it stars Ewan McGregor, and it's on YouTube. It's made by Stark Films. Highly recommend that. 
It's got a great, great punchline to that. Okay, well, thankfully we're moving on to something less horrific for your last <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've no idea what we're going to use here because I can't remember if I've had sounds or not, but there'll be something here anyway. entertainment system principally i was an atari video computer system boy but before that i used to love going to the penny arcades in brighton to play all the space invaders and pac-mans and galaxians all that caper but my favorite game was probably asteroids and a brilliant game called ripoff did you just put your money in that and then there was no game? Is that the rip-off? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the rip-off. No, rip-off was what they call a vective game where it wasn't bitmap. It was Vectron lines. I, I'm, mm. I'm not a technical person. So they were very smooth, very crisp, had this peculiar quality about the games. There's another one called Lunar Lander. And they seemed to be more speedy as well. There was an, a dynamic quality to them, which uh, the other games didn't seem to have. And they glowed. And you almost felt like a game like Tempest would be burnt onto your retinas if you'd been playing it for long enough in the arcades. But was yeah. Tempest the one with that dial? Yes. That's strange, yeah. wasn't it? And Vectrex was basically a home console version of these particular type of games and you could buy it in, in a toy shop it was bloody expensive and I think they only brought out 13 games it was a massive flop a bit like the Philips 2000 and I remember a friend of mine worked at Gamley's toy shop and they only had I think they only sold one uh, and they had two in stock and he just played the other one all the time and nearly got the sack <laughs> yeah I think ripoff though was the big game for me it was pirates trying to steal your booty, flying off in all different directions. It was the sounds as well, and I, I, I loved it. But I think, yeah, I preferred them to the actual Williams games and whatnot. Tatal. It's interesting mm. because it's at the very dawn of home video games. Mm. It's like a, it was like a high-end one, mm. and it was high-end at a time when most people's idea of sophistication mm. was, you know, like the mm. the Bimetone grandstand. With yeah, yeah, yeah. The two, well, I say fat, it's just two lines and the square yeah, yeah, yeah. in between them. Why they thought anyone would want to spend that amount or something that wasn't that much more advanced, uh, relatively, what, is beyond me. What, but also, it was self-contained, wasn't it? You, you actually had the screen within the console. Yes, it was like just a mirror, wasn't it? Or, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know. It was it, it was like deep thought. <laughs> <laughs> That sort of shape. I didn't have one myself. I played it in Gamley's toy shop a few times, so I did have to go back to the arcade with a little plastic bag of 10p's to play these games. Well, the only thing I really remember about it, see it featured on something on TV, Mm. and there was a game called Spike about a sort of cartoon dog character. I remember thinking, that looks quite good. And Mm. it was only years later, it struck me that I was thinking it was quite good on the basis of it being a cartoon character. Yeah. No concept of what the game might be. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what they were selling it on was the visual. Yeah, yeah, I'd say yeah. the game's going to be terrible for all I know. <laughs> well, so, so many of them were. <laughs> but one of these Vectrex units, I looked up to see if there, you can still buy them online. Mm. How much do you think a second-hand Vectrex costs on eBay? I'm going to go for £700. Pounds. Higher, higher. Um, 2000 Lower. <laughs> 
1,500. Yeah. <laughs> 1,200. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to tell me. It did, it did, it did well. No, um, it, was, it was something like $1,300, But that's with all the games and mm. the pen and everything. So I don't think I'll be splashing out on that. But those obsolete things do go for a fortune. I mean, I'm surprised by how much view Masters go for. So every kid had one at one point. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, quite often, you know... It was that they were sitting round in in your bedroom, like you didn't look at them. They were mm. they were that ubiquitous and that ignored. And yet now they do seem to go for quite right. a lot of money. It is crazy. I'd found all my a lot of old Atari game cartridges and noticed in a computer exchange they were selling SNES games and Sega games. And I thought, well, okay, so maybe they might be worth mm. something but the woman behind the counter didn't have a clue she she was aware of atari but she said oh no i don't think we even sell mm. i mean t- to her it was you know it's, it's 40 years ago it's over 40 years yeah, ago she, yeah. her mum wasn't even born and you know, time was when atari was the most sophisticated thing mm. you could get there was all or you had the m- m- television wasn't it yes yeah. Now that was interesting because that had a poker game where the guy spoke. That really, Did it? yeah, <laughs> that really impressed me. You really could actually hear a voice coming out of it. And was it like a proper voice, not like Ghostbusters on the Spectrum? Where it went, <laughs> 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 no, it was something like Jar, Oh, Dill, something like that. But uh, the Atari had some brilliant games mm. and some bloody awful games. Well, they also had that E.T. game that never came out. Well, and go, then somebody yeah. found years later that all the copies that were buried in the desert were they? Do you believe that? Isn't that like supposedly all the original rushes of the Wicker Man is under the M25? I thought somebody had actually come across a stash of them buried somewhere when they were building. But uh, oh, right. I could be wrong about that. But yeah, the Wicker Man story, I've never quite believed. They just destroyed it. Mean, what other films have got Rushes and dailies and deleted scenes knocking about tonight, especially a low budget one like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get letters now. I always yeah. do. Well, didn't that because uh, may, it might have been Rod Stewart trying to get rid of all the all the copies of? <laughs> Apparently, that was urban myth as well. Britt Eklund and the Nip. The Wicker Man for some reason inspires incredible urban myths, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say this mm. right. Mm. The song at the end that they all sing when the Wicker Man's ablaze yeah. um, it might have a surface resemblance mm. to the, the mouse rounds and bagpuss. It is not the same tune. Yeah. It never was, but that's now become, because people said it so often, it's become the accepted thing. All oh, right. And it's, you know, it's referred to in proper factual documentation now. And it's interesting to remark on the similarity, it's but, pu- you know, pu- they're, they're, they're turning into the fact is a bit... Mm. It's a Puff the Magic Dragon oh. kind of... <laughs> but did, here, it is Wicker Man, my favourite Wicker Man trivia, you'll probably know this, is what is the connection between Wicker Man and Not the Nine O'Clock News? Not Paul Giovanni, he didn't do any music for Not the Nine O'Clock News. That would be quite an experience ah, in itself. But, but you're on the right track. Oh, oh, Peter Brewis played the he's in, violin player. He's he, actually in the film as well, yeah. Yeah, he's in Magnet, isn't he? Yes. He, yeah, he, yeah. he did all the um, parody musics, um, many of them, on Not an Eye Cut News. So the Wicker Man, no one ever remembers that, do they? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great note to end on. If you do remember the Wicker Man, please write in let us know. Let's yeah. just say, can we just say thanks to the Spread Eagles, or Spread Eagles, and whoever that other podcast were, who I can't help thinking about me like Tim Worthington. 
a big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.